Well, we want to try to go on here in our study that was entitled something along the lines of men and women in Christ, equal, different, and one. This will be the fourth time that we've looked at this subject. The last time was basically a kind of a question and answer time. So let me just give a little bit of uh, bringing everybody up to speed if, if you weren't in on the other ones. What I've done is taken kind of an outline from an article by Wayne Grudem called Key Issues in the Manhood-Womanhood Controversy and use that as kind of a structure for a series of messages. Now, the key issues that he talks about uh, are, one, that men and women are equal in value and dignity. And he was, says it's very important that that one's put first, or otherwise you get everything else uh, distorted. The second key issue is that men and women have different roles in marriage, and I might say also in the church, as part of the created order. Number three is that the equality and differences between men and women reflect the equality and differences in the Trinity. And we started to look at that uh, a couple times ago, and that's what we want to continue on with this evening. And then the last three, the equality and differences between men and women are very good. That has to be, if they're rooted in the Trinity, it has to be very good. Um, also, number five, this is a matter of obedience to the Bible. There's all kinds of different ideas floating around related to gender roles and uh, attitudes that are very unbiblical in our culture. Uh, and we're just going to have to say, we're going to go by what the Bible says on this. It, it is a matter of obedience to the scriptures. And then lastly, this controversy is much bigger than we realize because it touches all areas of life. And um, I think at the end of our time, I'll, I'm going to hand out a, a sheet that will kind of bring that home to us as we look at it, uh, and then maybe we'll talk about some of that next week. But uh, anyway, we spent most of our first time on this subject emphasizing the equality of men and women, saying that both are made equally in the image of God. And we showed that the wrong attitude that has dominated uh, most cultures throughout most of history has been one of male dominance and superiority and how that that's why it's so important to emphasize this first key issue that Grudem brings out, that men and women are equal in value and dignity, because that's one of the main things that has been uh, attacked and uh, one of the main ways that Satan uh, tries to distort biblical manhood and womanhood. So that's what we did the first time. Spent quite a bit of time just looking at the evils of the male-dominant superiority attitude. The next time that we, we looked into this subject, we went on to recognize that although men and women are of equal value and dignity, God has some different roles and functions that relate to gender.
some things for men, some things for women. And uh, the distinction of masculine and feminine roles were ordained by God as part of the created order. It wasn't something that came along after the fall. And we looked at a number of scriptures that show that that is indeed the case, that these, these various roles, gender roles, were ordained by God as part of the created order. Now, it is true that the fall changed things. The fall introduced distortions into that, uh, those relationships between men and women. And most of what we see around us today is very far from what God intended for creatures, that is, men and women, made in his image. Very far from it. That's why we have such a hard time of even comprehending what we're talking about, because we see so many wrong examples that it's, it's, uh, it's difficult, unless we really ask God to help us to zero in on his truth and his scriptures, it's difficult to get a, a proper perspective on this. So, um, anyway, these distortions are a result of the fall, the abuses and distortions. Um, which brings me then to what we want to look at in more detail tonight, and that is the key issue number three, the equality and differences between the men and women reflect the equality and differences in the Trinity. And it's an amazing thing that we're going to look at here tonight. Um, I probably won't be able to convey that uh, the way it should be conveyed, but uh, nevertheless, maybe we'll get a little feel for it. Um, basically, what we're saying is that not only can we trace back the proper role relationships between men and women to the created order, ultimately we can trace them back to the very nature of God. Now that's an amazing thing. You can't get any further back than that. The very nature of God is our, uh, gives us the proper understanding of the roles of men and women. There are eternal inner Trinitarian relationships of authority and submission that should greatly affect our understanding of authority and submission here on earth. I mean, I'm going to just say that again because that's kind of, the, in a nutshell, what we're going to look at tonight. There are eternal inner Trinitarian relationships, relationships within the Trinity, relationships of authority and submission that should greatly affect our understanding of authority and submission here on earth, especially as we review our roles in marriage and in the church. So that's what we want to look at here tonight. And uh, let's turn to 1 Corinthians. This is kind of where we left off uh, when we were talking about this two times ago. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3. Now this is a difficult section here uh, related to the head covering, but I don't want to get off into that this evening. What I want to do is zero in on verse 3, where Paul says, but I want you to understand 
that Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of a woman. And God is the head of Christ. That's what brings up the whole subject of the head covering here in this section. And let me just, you know, I'll just give you a a nutshell view of what I think is going on in this section. I think what what we're dealing with here is a situation where the head covering in that time represented two things, femininity and submission. And therefore, this was very important to Paul because it reflects back on the very nature of authority and submission and manhood and womanhood. Now, the head covering does not have that uh, uh, symbolism in our culture today. But that doesn't mean that what Paul was teaching in this section doesn't matter. In other words, what I'm saying is I think the head covering was something that was cultural, but the teaching that's in here related to submission and femininity, roles, uh, uh, the basic roles of men and women, uh, that transcends any culture. So that's just, uh, without going into that whole section, that's kind of how I understand this, that... uh, of head covering, but here's what we want to get to. He says that God is the head of Christ. God is the head of Christ, and he makes that in a you know to be um, in reference or in relationship to these other uh, things he mentioned. Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman. So. We're going to look at this area and try to come to more of an understanding of what he means when he says God is the head of Christ tonight. Now, this is not an easy thing to deal with. Last time, you might remember, I asked this question when we were talking in terms of the subject of authority uh, and submission. I asked the question, when did the idea of headship and submission begin? Did it begin with the Puritans? Did it begin uh, back a little further uh, with the Reformers? Did it begin maybe with uh, uh, the New Testament teaching or maybe the Old Testament teaching about the patriarchs? Uh, When did it begin? Does it trace back to the created creation order? Well, we know it, it does that. So did it begin then? Well, you know the answer if you were here that time. It never began. It has always existed in the eternal nature of God himself. Authority and submission has always existed in the eternal nature of God himself. It's always been there in the relationship of the persons of the Trinity to one another, and you see it especially in the relationship of the Father and the Son in the Trinity. So saying that, I'm just trying to uh, bring home some of the weight or gravity of what we're talking about here tonight. Ultimately, then, what we're studying is how 
something of the beauty and excellency of the inner Trinitarian relationships are to be reflected in manhood and womanhood as he intended when he created men and women in his image. In other words, we're talking about how the very nature of God, and when he said we were made in his image, this is part of what he was talking about. And this, we as men and women in Christ are to re, be reflecting this, this aspect, many other aspects, but especially this aspect of what God is like. Well, to do this, we need to examine from the scriptures the very nature of the relationship between the persons of the Trinity. When you start doing that, I couldn't think of a better way of saying it than saying you're in pretty deep water. Uh, when you start trying to analyze the nature of the relationships between the persons of the Trinity. So I thought it uh, appropriate to quote uh, Louis Burkhoff from his systematic theology just as kind of a way of, of uh, setting the stage here. He says this, the Trinity is a mystery. Man cannot comprehend it and make it intelligible. It is intelligible in some of its relations and modes of manifestation, but unintelligible in its essential nature. The real difficulty lies in the relation in which the persons in the Godhead stand to the divine essence and to one another, which is what we're going to talk about tonight. He says that's where the real difficulty is. And this is a difficulty which the Church cannot remove, but only try to reduce to its proper proportion by a proper definition of terms. It has never tried to explain the mystery of the Trinity, but only sought to formulate the doctrine of the Trinity in such a manner that the errors which endanger it were warded off. So I say all that to say we are in deep water here. And when you're in deep water, <laughs> you could drown. <laughs> Hopefully that won't happen tonight. But uh, we have to be careful. He went on, uh, Burkhoff went on to say that uh, when you're studying the Trinity, you're studying what he called the incomprehensible glory of the Godhead. So again, incomprehensible. I think the place we have to begin, uh, well, the place we should begin is to pray, so why don't we do that? Father, we ask that you would keep us from error and, and give us insight into your word and into your nature. We ask this, that we might better glorify you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have to start by affirming the biblical and historical Christian position 
related to the Trinity, and that is of the total equality of nature of the persons of the Trinity. Total, absolute equality of nature. Um, again, we're dealing mainly here tonight with the Father and the Son, but this applies uh, as well to the Holy Spirit. But uh, just, I think it's clearer to see here in relation what we're going to talk about in relationship to the Father and Son. Though there is a functional submission of the Son to the Father, and that's what we're going to talk about here, the functional submission of the Son to the Father, there is an absolute equality of essence or nature. They are co-equal and co-eternal. As one of the early creeds put it, speaking of Christ, he is very God of very God. Absolutely equal with the Father. Or Jesus put it this way, I and the Father are one. Nevertheless, and this is the part that uh, we don't normally hear a whole lot about. Nevertheless, there is also we also see in Scripture a, a subordination of the Son to the Father. Not a subordination of nature or essence, because that w- that's a heresy. That's what the Arians taught. And that's what the Jehovah Witnesses teach today. Not a subordination of nature or essence, but a subordination of function or role. Now, some of this, you're going to say, this, you know, this sounds too theological. Don't, don't get lost here. This has very real and important implications for our lives, and especially the subject we're dealing with lately of biblical manhood and womanhood. So um, we're not talking about a subordination uh, of essence, but a subordination of function or role. Now, some would limit this to only Christ's time here on earth. He was subordinate while he was incarnate here on earth. But most Orthodox, Christian Orthodox, by that I mean biblical, Christian um, theologians, would say that Scripture teaches an eternal subordination of the Son to the Father. An eternal subordination of the Son to the Father. Let me read you a couple definitions here. The eternal subordination of the Son means that Jesus Christ is eternally the Son of God, equal in essence and in divine eternal divine nature with the Father, that the Father exercises eternal authority over the Son in function, and the Son eternally submits to the authority of the Father. To quote uh, one man that writes quite a bit on this site that I've been telling you about, Biblical uh, Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, Bruce Ware is his name, he says this, There is then an eternal and immutable equality of essence between the Father and Son, while there is also an eternal and immutable authority submission structure that marks the relationship of the Father and the Son. Um, 
just so we don't lose sight of what we're talking about here. This doctrine is critical because it tells us much about the nature of God, which in turn demonstrates how God intends that his triune nature be expressed in our human relationships. There is both unity and diversity, authority and equality in the Godhead. These transfer to our relationships within both home and church and paint a beautiful picture of Christ's redeeming love for his church. So as we're talking about these relationships within the Trinity, remember that we're doing that because we want to understand better biblical manhood and womanhood. Now the position that we're talking here about tonight has sometimes been called the complementarian view of submission or of subordination because the father's role and the son's role complement each other. Again, we're studying this because God intends that something of his triune nature be expressed in our male female relationships. We are to learn what it means to complement each other the way the Trinity complements, the various persons of the Trinity complement one another. There, so uh, we got to you know, keep that in our mind as we're studying these other things. But I, ha- I, I feel like I had to lay the biblical foundation for this teaching. Otherwise, you're going to say, well, that's, that's just kind of one person's view. And I want to show you that I, that I really think um, this is what the scriptures teach. So that's the question. Does, does the Bible really teach this? Well, let's consider, uh, consider this from the scriptures. First of all, I think that this eternal subordination is implied in the very names Father and Son. Um, 1 John 4.14 We read over these things and I think kind of subconsciously we understand this but I'm trying to bring it you know, right before our eyes, what we're talking about here. First uh, John 4.14 And we have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. See, the Father sent the Son. There's implied in the very names there is this uh, authority structure, this subordination. The, the, the son didn't just decide to do this. The father sent the son into the world. The son submits to the father in this mission of being, as it says here, the savior of the world. Um, let's look at another verse that brings this out. Jesus saying this himself, John chapter 8. And verse 28. 
Jesus therefore said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. So he says, I, don't, I do nothing of my own initiative. Well, then the question is, whose initiative was it? It was the Father's initiative. And he goes on to say it this way, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. You see that the Father-Son authority-submission relationship, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus' constant desire was to do the will of the Father. Well, you might say, well, that, that was just while he was here uh, on earth. But I don't think that's what the, the scriptures teach us. Um, the Son submitted to the Father in eternity past. I don't know any better way of saying it. In eternity past, before the creation of the world even, the Son was always doing those things which were pleasing to the Father. Um, Let's look at uh, John chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing, but I raise it up on the last day. The act of sending, when did that take place? The act of sending happened prior to Jesus' human life here on earth. God sent him into this world. Um, But he says, I come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Um, Turn to 8.42. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees here, If God were your father, you would love me, but for I proceed forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. It wasn't Jesus' initiative to come. It was the Father's. That's what he says. I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. So that act of sending happened prior to Jesus' human life here on earth. It was the Father's initiative to send the Son. It wasn't the Son's initiative. Jesus actually compares his sending to, to, uh, by the Father to his own sending out of his disciples. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. As Jesus had authority over his followers to commission them, the Father likewise had authority to commission Jesus. This sending demonstrates the eternal relationship of the Father and the Son. 
Again, I think this verse is so good that we already quoted. I do always the things which please the Father. That was always, never has been a case when that, I mean, any time, it wasn't just here on earth, but always. I do always the things that please the Father because he's the Father. I'm the Son. There is this relationship of authority and submission. So that's true in eternity past. It's also true in eternity future. And again, uh, I, don't, I don't know if we can talk about eternity past and eternity future, but I don't know how else to say it. Uh, looking on into eternity, uh, this is also true. There's at least 15 times in the New Testament where, uh, where Jesus speaks of sitting at the right hand of the Father. Now, what does that mean? Let's look at a couple of them. Ephesians 1.20. Well, we're kind of cutting in the middle of a verse here. Back in 19, maybe we can start at the beginning of the sentence. These are in accordance with the workings of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ. That's talking about the Father, which he, the Father, brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. God seated Christ at his right hand. So who has the great position of authority, God the Father. He seats Jesus at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he, that is the Father, put all things in subjection under his feet, the Son, and gave him as head over all things to the church. So he... The Father put all things in subjection to the Son. I'm trying to point out this eternal subordination of the Son. And this has to do uh, with eternity in the future. Let's turn back to Psalm 110, verse 1. This is really where many of these references are taken from. An incredible scripture here. Psalm one ten one. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. That's God the Father saying God the Son to God the Son, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet until God the Father makes Christ's enemies a footstool for his feet. After his resurrection, Jesus is given a a seat that is a position of authority, but it's a subordinate. It's at the right hand of God. 
He's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Uh, Hebrews, there's, like I said, there's at least 15 references to this in the New Testament. Uh, Hebrews 1, chap, uh, chapter 1, verse 3. You see both the equality with God in terms of nature and the subordination in terms of function in these verses. Uh, Verse 2, In these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. See, there's the Son, equal in nature, sitting down at the right hand of God the Father, of the Majesty on high. Um, Chapter 8, verse 1. I don't know if we need to multiply these, uh, but just to show that it is over and over presented in the Scriptures. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Speaking of Christ again at the right hand of God the Father. Uh, And that is going to be true throughout eternity. We're talking in terms of eternity future. Um, Probably the clearest verse on what we're talking about here is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So let's turn to that one. First Corinthians chapter 15 and verse... Well, we'll start with verse 24. Then comes the end. We're talking about the future here, way future. Then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to God and Father, to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That's what we're talking about sitting at the right hand of God until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. That is, God has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is excluded who put all things in subjection to him. In other words, God's excluded from this thing of being one of the things that's in subjection to Christ because he's the one that put everything in subjection to Christ. It is evident he is accepted um, who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, that is, to the Son, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. So these are amazing verses. 
but basically what we're in a, we're in a situation right now when all things are being subjected to Christ and when everything finally is subjected to Christ then Christ basically is going to turn all that over to the father and um, it says that God may be all in all let me just read the way one person explained this the son has his position over all creation bringing everything into subjection under his feet only because the father has given all things to the son the son then shows himself as supreme victor and conqueror of all things including the conqueror of death itself only because the father has given him this highest of callings and roles in full acknowledgement of the father's supremacy the Son displays his submission to the Father by delivering up the now-conquered kingdom to the Father and then, remarkably, by subjecting himself also to the Father. Though all of creation is subject to the Son, the Son himself is subject to the Father. Now, these, we, we don't usually think along these lines, you see. And... We have to keep this in balance with the, the, the teaching of the, uh, the fact that Christ is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father, equal in essence and nature. And yet, in terms of function and role, there is this authority-submission structure. And I, I don't know... If this is right, for sure, I'll just say I'm not sure. But it seems to me that this is what Jesus meant when he said, the Father is greater than I. Now that is an incredible statement, you see. We know it cannot mean that he's greater in his essential nature. The Father is not essentially greater, but in terms of of role he is greater there is an, an authority submission structure in the trinity itself related to function and therefore Jesus could say the father is greater than I why don't we look at that verse just um, it's, it's, it's a verse you know the, the Arians would use you see to say well this proves that Christ isn't God well, this, this is not what Jesus meant at all. Um, John chapter 14, verse 31. Actually, verse 28. I, I, I'm going to then refer to verse uh, 31, but start 14, 28. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. See, it's the, it's the Son going to the Father. And the Father is greater than I. And one of the ways that, even in the context here, if you look at verse 31, uh, but that the world may know that I love the Father... And as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Let us go from here. See, the Father gave commandment. 
the, the one who is uh, the father commands the son who is in a subordinate position in terms and that's what I think he means here when he's talking about the father is greater than I well not an essential uh, not great, greater in any in terms of nature or essence but in terms of role and function uh, Well, we started out with this verse here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul says, God is the head of Christ. And then he uses that in terms of the proper role relationships in a church meeting. That's what he was talking about here. So this verse helps us to understand that there is a direct connection between the Trinity and our roles in the church and in marriage. And what we see in this, now now I'm going to try to make application of what we've been dealing with here. What we see is that it is possible to be subordinate in authority subordinate to an authority, yet equal in being. See, that's what you have in Christ. He's subordinate in this inner Trinitarian relationship, and yet he's equal in being. The Trinity shows us that we can have equality along with differences of role at the same time. Equality along with differences of role at the same time. And this is, this is really foreign to our thinking. We do not think this way. We think that authority has to be superiority. And what we're taught here, and what we need to understand, is so important for marriage, is that, that, that authority does not mean inferiority in any way. How this is expressed in marriage is especially beautiful. If headship and submission can exist between equal persons in the Godhead itself, then we can understand how the same type of relationship can exist between equal persons in marriage. Headship and submission between equal persons. We just don't think this way, you see. The husband is called to be the head of the wife in the same way that Christ is the head of the church. He imitates the headship of Jesus Christ. The wife is called to imitate the submission of Christ to the Father. Jesus Christ is so great 
that both a man and a woman together are needed to display his glorious leadership and servanthood. We need to see not only authority, but also submission as godlike. I mean, this is big if you can get a hold of this. We need to see not only authority, but also submission as godlike. We more readily associate God with authority, but since the Son is the eternal Son of the Father, and since the Son is eternally God, then it follows that the inner Trinitarian nature of God honors both authority and submission. Just as it is godlike to lead responsibly and well, so it is godlike to submit in human relationships where this is required. It is godlike for wives to submit to their husbands. It is godlike for children to obey their parents. It is godlike for church members to follow the directives of their godly male eldership. We honor God as we model both sides of the authority-submission relationship that characterize the Trinitarian persons themselves. Well, um, what I want to do here then in closing is just read what I read a couple weeks ago because I think this <coughs> brings it home really well. Again, this is uh, from uh, Wayne Grudem. We can learn from this relationship among the members of the Trinity that submission to rightful authority is a noble virtue. It is a privilege. It is something good and desirable. It is the virtue that has been demonstrated by the eternal Son of God forever. It is His glory the glory of the Son as he relates to his Father. In modern society, we tend to think in this way. If you are a person who has authority over another, that's a good thing. If you are someone who has to submit to authority, that's a bad thing. But that is the world's viewpoint. It is not true. Submission to a rightful authority is a good and noble and wonderful thing because it reflects the interpersonal relationship within the Godhead, within God himself. We can say that a relationship of authority and submission between equals with mutual giving of honor is the most fundamental and most glorious interpersonal relationship in the universe. Such a relationship allows interpersonal differences without the idea of better or worse or more important or less important. And then I closed with this last time. When we begin to dislike the very idea of authority and submission, not the distortions and abuses of authority and submission, but, we, but when we begin to dislike the very idea of authority and submission, we are tampering with something very deep we are beginning to dislike God himself.
I think we can say this. We're talking about reflecting the character of God, in especially in, in our male-female relationships. And I think this is something to consider here. Whenever authority is correctly used, God's own character is reflected. And that's why abuse of authority is so terrible, because it's a, it's a wrong reflection of the character of God. But whenever authority is correctly used, God's own character is reflected. And that's what people should see in marriage and in the church. Equality, differences, and unity. Redemption does not remove the authority structure, but it purifies and sanctifies these structures. What happens when a person becomes a Christian is that it makes, should make, and will make the authority submission structure godlike. Well, that is the theological underpinnings for the position that we're taking and that we said was the key, one of the key here, key issues, and that is the equality and differences between men and women reflect the equality and differences in the Trinity. So we'll go on from there next time. Uh, let me hand out these sheets and uh, I may say just a word about them. I think I ran off 50, so maybe... Yeah, it's it's I'll wait till they get around here a little bit further. Just to kind of give you a A little help in getting started on this chart. The position that I was presenting tonight, which I think is the biblical position, is there in the middle, the complementarian middle, they call it. And if you read down through this list straight down from that, you'll see how this view affects various areas of life, uh, our view of God, our view of men and women, 
marriage, children, right on down. If you go to the left of that middle position, you get this uh, one that's called egalitarianism. And that is basically that there is no subordination amongst the Trinity. Uh, it's a mutual submission. And that's what you'll hear a lot uh, today in some circles related to uh, their understanding of marriage and also in the church. These uh, uh, egalitarians would be those people who say that it's all right for a woman, for instance, to be a pastor or a, uh, an elder in the church because it's, a, it's an idea of um, mutual submission and all, uh, you know, um, there's no distinction in terms of gender, in other words. Then, if you go even further uh, to the left, you get off into some very extreme positions uh, related to some of the areas that our society is going to uh, going into right now. So that's going to the left. If you go to the right uh, of the uh, complementarian, you get to the attitude of male dominance uh, and overemphasis on the differences between men and women with men being uh, in charge uh, and uh, having a, a superiority uh, position and attitude. And if you go clear to the right, you get off into some very extreme positions uh, related to male dominance. So I thought it was an interesting chart. You may not agree with everything as uh, in terms of how uh, the writer, which I think was Wayne Grudem, uh, viewed some of the ramifications in these positions. But uh, by and large, I think it's helpful to uh, kind of see what happens if you go to one extreme or the other, which, which is what I tried to emphasize a number of times, unless you keep the biblical balance, you're going to really get off track and uh, bring harm to this life and certainly a distorted view of God uh, and uh, the Trinity. So anyway, you can uh, take that home and look at it a little bit, and we'll, we'll talk about that and some other things next time. Really, this fits into... We were talking about the six key issues. The last one, this controversy is much bigger than we realize because it touches all areas of life. And you can see as you go through this chart how these things we've been talking about, they may have sounded very, you know, almost academic in some ways, uh, maybe too theological, but they're not. They, they really work out right down into every area of our lives. So that's why I think this chart's worth looking at. All right, I'll stop. Um, does anyone have anything they'd like to say?